For the time that is ours to share together, I want to talk a little bit about don't put me in a box. Don't put me in a box. The, the human mind is a wonderful instrument. It makes millions upon millions of calculations. It's always looking at information and analyzing it. One of the things that does some of the analyzing is called the reticular activating system. Big old $5 word that talks about the part of your brain that number one controls sleepfulness and wakefulness. But it also looks at information and filters it out and decides whether or not this piece of information is usable or not. It's sort of a gatekeeper to the conscious mind, if you will. And it filters out the the amounts of information that you get from uh, day to day, moment to moment. And so this reticular activating system operates like a gatekeeper. And in some instances, it's needed. There's no need to process everything you see going on. There's every sound you hear, every, 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 uh, every, every sight that you see, every color, everything that somebody's doing. You don't need to process that all the time. And so your brain is always about trying to make something easier. And so your reticular activating system, when it's working, does some things like this. You ever been in a room and heard the AC kick on or the heat kick on in this situation and then about five to ten minutes later you don't hear it anymore? It's still running. You would know if it wasn't running. It's still running but you don't hear it anymore because your brain has determined that's not necessary. Your reticular activating system has determined you don't need to hear the vents blowing to see what's going on in the room. You ever bought a car, brand new car, and it seems like after you bought the car, everybody and their mama got that same car. You just went to the dealership and bought this car, and you ain't seen this car anywhere on the road, but now it seems like you can't get from work to home without seeing it four or five times. That is your reticular activating system working. That is your brain working. And it's a necessary device because along with the reticular activating system and other parts in your brain, your brain operates in the sense of if I was going to build a bridge over a river. When I came after I finished building this bridge over the river, when I come back to the river, I'm not going to build a new bridge to cross that same river. I've already got one there. And so that's the way our brain works. And so in a good way, it's efficient. But there are some bad parts to it as well. Because the same way that brain works is the same way that we sometimes start stereotyping people. Because our brain works that way, that's the same way some people end up 
prejudiced. Because our brain works that way, some of us end up clinging to certain traditions and how we think a person should act in a situation and how we think uh, the right type of person should be before they come into our inner circle. I'm not saying don't use wisdom, but I'm, I'm saying that we use this sometimes within the first couple of seconds when we meet somebody. We've already made our decisions about them and we're only using uh, the rest of the information that we get after that first initial impression to confirm our bias. And so I think about that when I look at Peter. Uh, One of uh, the prominent disciples in the Bible mentioned over 150 times. He had his ups and downs. But if we look at the text, Peter had a bit of a mouth on him. Peter could run a little hot. Peter could tell you what was on his mind and didn't care whether you liked it or not. We all know somebody that can run a little hot. Somebody that can get a little angry and fly off the cuff real fast. And if you don't know anybody like that, you might be that person. Peter didn't go too many places without packing. Peter had something on him to the point that when they came to arrest Jesus, Jesus was about to get arrested and Peter pulled out a sword and cut a man's ear off. And Jesus had to heal the man's ear and put it back on and he said that it wasn't the time for the sword. He didn't say get rid of the sword. He just said put it away. But Peter, if we were using this type of thought process about Peter, Peter would have never gotten into the church. Peter would have been described a certain way and we would have never let him in. We do that in our day to day lives. There are systems set up to do that. I think about these type of things when I think about our young black men. Did you know that in the Midwest, they had a prison system set up with these private prisons where they had to calculate how many people were going to be in the prison? And they got real good at it. They got so good at it that they predicted uh, by the time the child was in seventh grade, if they were in a single parent household and they were struggling with math and science. They were going to jail. And they got over 90% accurate with this. To the point that while I was in middle school in Indianapolis, Indiana, I didn't know it at the time. I found out when I was much older. But we had a counselor in Northview Middle School that pulled all the young black men out. And we had to spend Tuesdays afternoon, Tuesday afternoons in the library after school. And she would talk to us about anger. How to talk to people. How not to do certain. I didn't know why we were all in the room, but come to find out we all at the time were from single parent households. And although I grew up and got a job as an engineer later on during that time, I struggled with math and science. But they had put this together because she saw this system trying to put people in a box. But it doesn't even start as early as seventh grade. It starts at third grade. Because they say if you can't read at at third grade level, by the time you get to third grade, that you'll never catch up. 
So they'll help you just go ahead and pull you up out the school and find a nice little jail cell for you. But it starts even earlier than that. There was a recently published report that talked about the fact that how black and brown children as early as preschool are being expelled from preschool for things that other children just get just get disciplined for. Why? Because we got to get you used to getting in trouble. We got to get you used to being in trouble with authority. We got to get you used to that. So that way, by the time you get to high school, we can just put you in jail. And I just re- read recently um, that there is a, I can't remember the state right now, but there is another private prison at this very moment that is suing their state because they have these private prisons and private prisons need people in the jail in order to fit, keep, the, keep it 96% full. And anytime it's not 96% full, they get to sue the state. So they filed a lawsuit because they got these prisons built and nobody's in them. So we need to fill them up. So you know what the state did in response? They made fighting at school a felony. They've got these boxes that they are trying to put people in. And so we look at those situations and we look at people who have had these run-ins with the system. We look at people who dress and look and don't act the way that we think they should act and we shun them. And when we shun them, they go to a system that will accept them. I would submit to you that there are those who join gangs not because they like the gang life, but they like the discipline of it. I'm quite familiar with a lot of gangs in my area, and they have military ranking systems. So you can go from a foot soldier to a three-star or a four-star or a five-star, or depending on what the egg, because gangster disciples like the number six, and and vice lords like the number five. So you can be either a five or a six-star general, depending on the, the usage of it. But they go there because we shun them. And when we shun them and they're looking for discipline in their lives, they find it. It's stuff you got to memorize to be in the game. It's orders you have to obey. It's commands being given. It's military structure being put in. And so they thrive in these areas because we thought something about them and shunned them away. But they didn't shun. The, The early church did not shun Peter away. And so he went on to be a pretty prominent person in the faith. Peter here is talking to Cornelius. And you have Cornelius who is what they would call a God-fearer. When you hear God-fearer in the New Testament about somebody like the centurion or somebody of that matter, that doesn't necessarily mean they all the way in. They may have been born to another faith, but they still respect and understand the the statutes and everything that has been poured out for God's people. So a God-fearer is somebody that practiced some of the Hebrew rituals, read the scriptures, and maybe even embraced And supported the people of God. But couldn't be outright accepted because they was in the wrong family. And so I look at the Cornelius. 
and I get happy too. I know that my pedigree, my, my lineage may not be the best, but Jesus still had room for me. I love my last name, but I understand that my lineage does not limit me. And so you have Cornelius, who is a God fearer and comes into the text. And you have Peter that goes on to be known as an eloquent preacher, a miracle worker, administrative skills. The church historians say that he ran what would be considered the church after Jesus ascended into heaven. He gave bold testimony and moved thousands of people to Christ. But he could have been left on the fishing dock. If somebody had said he wasn't the right, he didn't have the right education. He wasn't born from the right family. He didn't have the right amount of money in his pocket. He didn't hang around the right people. We ought not put people in a box. What if they had said he wasn't good enough? Just think about that. And so we have Peter and we have Cornelius. And the time, and, and we come to Acts 10 in the middle of a story, and it's about Cornelius being converted. Let the church say conversion. Uh, Peter goes to Cornelius' house at the ninth hour, which is 3 p.m. And God told him that in, in his prayers that some men from, to go find some men from Joppa and find Peter. And at the time, Peter was praying on a rooftop at the same time that Cornelius was having his vision. And Peter had this vision and all kind of animals were shown to him. And God said, rise, Peter, kill and eat. I like that phrase. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Because when we have people that want to argue about scripture, usually in a way that is trying to prove a point or turn a Christian into a hypocrite, we like to go, well, not we, but they like to go to these passages. And they say, well, if you believe in the Bible, uh, why are you eating shellfish? Your church is having a crawfish boil. I thought y'all read y'all Bibles. Bible say not to eat shellfish in the Old Testament. Say not to eat pork and say not to mix fabrics. Ah. But he says, God tells Peter, rise, Peter, kill and eat and tells him that don't not to call anything that God has made unclean. Amen. Amen. See, you have two kinds of laws in the Old Testament. You have what you call your moral laws and you have what you call your ceremonial laws. Moral laws are the things that you're supposed to obey no matter what. Your ceremonial laws are in anticipation of a particular ceremony. And so that, that what to wear and what to eat and what not to eat in those cases, those are ceremonial laws because they had those in anticipation of the Messiah. Well, guess what? The Messiah has come. So those ceremonial laws, we don't need to practice because the ceremony has already happened. Can I make it plain? Do you pass out flyers to a party that's already over? It's already happening. So when he's telling them, rise, Peter, kill, and eat, don't call anything I've made clean uh, unclean, he's letting them know that this has passed. And so he has this vision at the same time that Cornelius has this vision, and they go meet with each other. And Peter now understands 
the realization of his vision. He says, I now realize it's true that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. So it didn't matter now that Cornelius was not born into a Hebrew family. He could still experience that salvation, that wonder-working power that is in Christ Jesus. It didn't matter what family he came to. He's coming into the right family now. And so they have this conversation. And the point of most conversations is usually conversion. Conversation. Conversion. He's letting them know that Peter now realizes that God does not show partiality. God is not showing favoritism. God is not putting up a list of people that only these people can get in and nobody else can get out. I don't know if I would want to be a part of any organization that did that anyway. (laughs) I I recall several conversations someone's had with a a, a particular faith that believes that only 144,000 people are getting into heaven. Now, they're quoting Revelation when he says that he saw 144,000, but the problem is is when you read the next verse, he says, I then saw a number that no man can count. But why would you join something if only 144,000 people were going to be saved? What happens if you 144,001? We ought not put these boxes on these things, and so there's the number that nobody counts. And, and, And so they're having this clarification, and now... Cornelius and and Peter are coming to an understanding about the vision. And and in verse 36, he says, you know, the message that God sent to the people of Israel. Announcing the good news of grace through Jesus Christ. And Peter is preaching a sermon. I like that Peter went from being a little hot headed to being able to concisely explain Jesus Christ. He talks about the message of the gospel and the good news of peace through Christ. And even though it started in Israel, it went out amongst the rest of the world. So it's not where you start, but it's where you at. Then it says how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. And he went out doing good and healing all those who were under the power of him. Jesus went to the synagogue and said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me and anointed me to preach the good news to the poor and to set the captives free and recovery of sight to the blind and to declare the acceptable year of the Lord. So he's letting them know everything that Jesus was supposed to do. He did it. And because he did everything that he was supposed to do, you can now have access to it. And he talks about the, the message of the gospel and spreading the good news. And then he lets them know about the the Messiah. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with Holy Spirit and power and went around doing good. And because there is the Messiah of the gospel, we have the ministers of the gospel. Because Jesus did what he did, we all now are supposed to do what we're supposed to do. I'll say it time and time again, you all will preach more sermons than I ever will. I get about a good 15 to 30 minutes on Sunday and maybe a little something, something on Wednesday. But the people you work with will deal with you Monday through Friday, eight to five. And I'll push it one further. The people you deal with in your own family will deal with it more. How can you be Jesus to those who are the least, the last and the lost if you can't be Jesus in your own house? We are always somebody's interpretation of a Christian. 
And then he says that he, uh, uh, in, in, in verse 39, he says, we are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And then he says, they killed him on a cross. But God raised him on the third day and caused him to be seen. You know, I spent the last week in Dallas taking this semester, uh, uh, this one week long intensive called Preaching in the Postmodern Pulpit. And one thing that I've learned in preaching in the postmodern pulpit is that I am not postmodern. I mean, we just got to be honest. I know we're talking about not putting people in a box, but I've learned that there are some boxes I got to be in. And the reason I say I am not postmodern is, is, is the philosophy of postmodernism is that you are open to change. You are open, and by change, I mean that your philosophy is able to be converted. And if you, you believe that there are no absolute truths, well, I'm sorry, but I learned that there are some absolute truths. You can't shake me off of it. You can't shake me off of God being real. You can't shake me off of him sending his son, Jesus, to die for my sins. You can't shake me off of him dying. Not no metaphysical death, not no imagination, not none of that. You can't shake me off of that. And you can't shake me off of him rising from the dead on the third day. This ain't something that the disciples decided to make off. You can't shake me off of that. And so I've learned with concrete evidence that I am not postmodern and I'm okay with that. And I think about that when I think about this text because Peter is old school and I'm a little old school. I know I'm young, but I've been raised old school and my mama and my grandmama, they kept me in church. And so uh, when I say I'm old school, what I mean is there's a. there are certain things I, I know I'm going to have to adhere to. I know my grandmother's in the audience, and I'm sorry I put you on the spot, but I'm going to talk about you for a little bit. When she talks about rating a preacher, when they get too far from the text, she likes to open up her Bible and put her finger on the scripture where they stopped. And wait for them to come back to the text and actually start preaching the Bible. And so I'm old school because I like to preach the text. I may use some some examples that are out and about to put it in, but I still think the text stands for itself. That's another thing I'm going to hold on to and I can't let go. Second thing that I think is kind of old school and I see in Peter is it didn't matter where Peter started. I grew up under some old school preachers and it didn't matter where they started. And it actually was said to me about this at this preaching in the postmodern pulpit class. It don't matter where Johnny started. It don't matter where these old school preachers started, the ones who held on to these traditions and its foundations. You going to the cross sooner or later. It don't matter where they started. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Uh, it doesn't matter where they do it. As a matter of fact, the teacher was, we had a, 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 a practice where we were preaching out of a certain uh, text and he was talking about going to the cross and how it is common to do it in the, in, in, in the, the African-American tradition. And he said, I think it's hard to go to the cross in this text. And at the time, he was talking about Matthew 2, where the Magi came to see the king and then went away from here. And I was like, no, it's not hard to go to the cross right there. Let me show you where it's at, because they gave him frankincense and myrrh, right? Uh, You got the, I mean, the gold frankincense and myrrh. You got the gold because he's king. (laughs) You got the, 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 the frankincense because he's a priest. And you got the myrrh because they used that to anoint bodies when they had to die. So we are already at Friday morning right there. 
so it didn't matter when he says that that he's in, in the text where uh Peter is talking about him being killed, but God, they killed him on the cross, but God raised him from the dead. Again, it didn't matter where they started. You knew somewhere in the sermon they were going to talk about that one Friday morning on a hill called Calvary where they took my Savior and hung him up between two thieves and he died. Didn't he die? Died until the moon was dipped in blood. Died until the earth reeled and rocked like a natural man. Died until the sun refused to shine. Died until the centurion said, surely, surely this must be the son of God. But he wouldn't leave him there. He put him in that borrowed tomb. And it was a borrowed tomb from Joseph because he wasn't going to be there long. And my favorite part about it when I would see these old school school preachers come to a close is they talk about Jesus being the rock. And you put this rock in a tomb, which is another rock. And you put a stone in front of the rock, which is another rock. So you got a rock in front of a rock with a rock on the inside. But then they talk about the rock on the inside being greater than the rock on the outside. So early the Sunday morning, he gets up with all power in his hand. So it didn't matter where you started. We knew what we were going to finish. And so I like that when I read Acts because Peter says it so succinctly all over Acts. Jesus, whom you crucified. But God raised him from the dead. And so in this conversion, in this conversation with Cornelius, he's letting him know about this Jesus Christ who was raised from the dead. And because he was raised from the dead, we all got to tell somebody. We all got to let somebody know why hold on to this goodness all by yourself and not share it with others that you care about. No matter where they come from, no matter where they started, it's an opportunity to share the gospel with Christ. Of Christ with your friends rather. And it doesn't matter what you start. We look at the Bible and we look at the Bible for heroes. But we ought to be looking at the Bible for friends. Because Abraham lied several times. Sarah laughed at God's promises. Moses had a stuttering problem. David, David liked the women. Timothy had ulcers. Hosea's wife was a woman of the night. Solomon was too rich. Abraham was too old. David's too young. Peter was afraid of death. Lazarus was dead. But these are people that God used. If we'd have just looked at their resume, they'd have never got an interview. But somebody saw fit to use them. Paul was a murderer and so was Moses. Elijah got burnt out and went in the cave and hid from God's people because he was tired of dealing with them. There are people all over the Bible that God uses over and over again. And then I think about John 1 and 46. When they talk about this Jesus and where he's from and and the the, the disciples are coming around and they go to one and they go to Nathaniel and they ask him and John, come follow this Jesus. And they ask him where he's from. And they say Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? There they are putting them in a box based on the neighborhood that he's from. We ought not be able to put people in a box. And Philip answers him, come and see. And that come and see attitude, that not trying to put people in a box, that trying to reach out to those whether they don't come from the place that we would like them to come from, changed Nathaniel's life. And you might just change somebody else's life. Reaching out to somebody that you would have thought is the least and last in the loss and not out of charity. Not because you think that you are better than them, but because everybody deserves an opportunity to experience God's grace. We ought not 
put them in a box. Uh, I thought about this story by a man by the name of James Dixon in Chicago, Illinois. It's an old story, but it still applies because it happened around 1976. And here you had James Dixon that had a rap sheet as long as anybody was tall. Arrested time and time again, over and over again. And he came across another officer by the name of Sergeant Scanlon. And they had a disagreement. And that disagreement turned into a tussle and Sergeant Scanlon ended up shot. And here you have Sergeant Scanlon with this, this thug, this person with this long rap sheet, getting James Dixon arrested for assaulting a police officer. James Dixon was in jail for four years before his trial came to do. He was sitting in Cook County Jail in Chicago for almost four years. Prosecutors was like, this is an open and shut case. We have our thug, we have our police officer, we have our police officer getting shot. But there's an anonymous call to the prosecutor's office. And this anonymous call says, you need to check the evidence. Don't just go off of the testimony of others, you need to check the evidence. Why? Because Sergeant Scanlon was at a retirement party the week before he had that altercation with James Dixon. And he was showing off his pen gun. It was, a gun, it was a gun that looked like a pen but was able to uh, hold a 22 caliber bullet in it. And so that gun, they, they, they checked the evidence. They, they went to the testimony. They looked at everything else and come to find out that Dixon had a gun in his pocket. And he didn't say anything because police officers weren't supposed to carry unclassified guns like that. And so instead of just saying I had a pin gun in my pocket and it went off and I shot myself, he blamed James Dixon. But there was an anonymous phone call that told him to check the evidence and see where that leads. And that's what has happened to all of us. We were born in sin. Our, our, our reward for being born in sin is death, hell, and the grave. But on our way to that fiery furnace, somebody made a phone call and tell them to check the evidence. And so where our outfits might have had dirt up on us, when you check the evidence, we've been washed in the blood of the crucified lamb. When you check the evidence, there's somebody that took our place on the cross. He took all of our sins and took us and took that to the cross with him so that we could have access to eternal life. We checked the evidence. They didn't put us in a box. They didn't base us on where we were born or who our mama was or who our big mama was, who our daddy was, or our big daddy. We have Jesus. And Jesus is greater than any box that anybody else can put us in. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the doors of the church are open and we invite you to come.